If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Rob Attar and this is the fourth History Extra podcast for September 2012. Coming up this week, we have... If someone working in an area of military intelligence, essentially, was, was uh, found to be in correspondence with, with a convicted spy, she'd be in great trouble. That was Orlando Fijis discussing some remarkable letters from the Soviet Union. There was heated curling tongues. When you see the flame coming out of the back of them, I don't think I'd have put them near my head. And that was John Butterworth talking about the history of the gas industry. listening to the History Extra podcast, which is brought to you by the team behind BBC History magazine. You can find the magazine in all good news agents and on subscription. Plus we have a Kindle edition available on the Amazon website and an iPad edition on the Apple newsstand. You can find out more details of all of this, plus great subscription deals at our website, which is historyextra.com. And if you have any comments about the podcast or any of our other products, you can get in touch with us through email, podcast at historyextra.com, on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash historyextra, 
or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash history extra. Lev Mishenko and Svetlana Ivanova met in the 1930s when both were working as scientists in Moscow. In 1941, their courtship was interrupted by the German invasion of the Soviet Union. While serving in the Red Army, Lev was captured by German forces and later interned in Buchenwald. Despite the privations of captivity, Lev survived the war, but his ordeal was not yet over. On returning to the Soviet Union, he, like many others, was convicted of espionage and sent off to a gulag in Siberia, where he would remain for eight years. Following Lev's release, he married Svetlana and the couple remained together until both passed away only a few years ago. Throughout his period of incarceration in the Gulag, Lev kept up a correspondence with Svetlana, and amazingly, the letters that the couple wrote to each other, numbering well over a thousand, have survived to this day. These remarkable documents form the basis of historian Orlando Feige's latest book, Just Send Me Word. I spoke to Orlando a few days ago to find out more about the letters and the story of Lev and Svetlana. How did these letters first come to light? Well, they've been kept by Lev and Svetlana for many years, obviously, and I don't think Lev saw the historical significance of them. He saw them simply as private treasures until he began to write his own memoirs about the war years, which was a book published in Russia in 2004, I think. But then um, Memorial, the human rights organisation in Moscow, began taking interviews from Lev about his war years, and... That sort of brought out the historical significance of the letters for him, and he was eventually persuaded to give the letters as part of the family archive in three enormous trunks to Memorial, where they were delivered in October or September, I think, October 2007, and that's just when I discovered them myself, literally stumbling on the three trunks when I went to visit Memorial to make a radio programme about a project I'd done with them an earlier book and they said this archive had just come in so we opened up the smallest of the trunks where these love letters were and had no idea even how many there were but it was obvious from the start that they were a tremendous resource uh, for all sorts of aspects of life in Stalin's Russia. What is so unique about these letters? Well it's by far the biggest um, private correspondence ever to come out um, of the Gulag, as far as we know, 1,246 letters. It's extraordinary in that we have both sides of the correspondence in a complete run of letters between 1946 and 1954. And that's unusual because although prisoners obviously kept letters coming to them as treasures, it was very unusual for someone receiving letters from a Gulag prisoner to keep them, but Svetlana did. And then I think the other thing that's so remarkable about this correspondence is that it's essentially uncensored. The letters were smuggled in and out of uh, the Pechora labour camp in the far north of Russia by voluntary workers who had access to the prison zone where Lev worked or who lived within the prison zone, some of them. And so they're remarkably free of censorship. There's still elements of self-censorship in them, but um, they're very revealing. And as the smuggling system became more secure, Lev opened up about conditions in the camp. They, uh, he spoke extremely revealingly about the psychology of a prisoner, 
about his fears and anxieties, about what was going on around him on a daily basis. And they are, as far as we know, his letters, uh, the only major real-time record we have of daily life in the Gulag. We have lots of memoirs, obviously some of them great works of literature by people like Solzhenitsyn, um, about life remembered as a former prisoner. But Lev's letters, uh, about 700 of them, are, as far as we know, the only major real-time record of what it was like to live in a labour camp, you know, and written within inside the barbed wire zone. But for me, the most extraordinary thing about the correspondence, not its size or its uncensored nature or um, this completeness, it's the fact that the two people writing the letters were so exceptional, both very, very interesting people, both extremely brave and courageous people, and both very good writers. I think Lev in particular is, is an exceptional writer. Obviously, he had a lot of time on his hands, but he drafted letters and was able to, I think, express his feelings and um, experiences in a, in a very precise way, which, as I say, is very revealing. And how much of a risk were the couple taking by writing these letters to each other and then keeping them? Oh, enormous risk. Svetlana, uh, in particular, because obviously to receive letters from a prisoner was compromising and could get one into trouble, but especially for someone in her situation to keep illegal letters as these were, because she was working in an area of industrial research. She was a physicist developing synthetic rubber, an important Soviet industry, but one that was a military secret. So if she was discovered to be in correspondence with effectively a convicted spy. Lev wasn't guilty of espionage, but that's what he was fitted up to confessing to in 1945. You know, if, if someone working in an area of military intelligence essentially was was uh, found to be in correspondence with, with a convicted spy, she'd be in great trouble. So, she, so the smuggling system also had to involve a very elaborate system of, of preserving and hiding the letters. But, you know, it wasn't just letters that were smuggled. Svetlana herself was smuggled into the camp on four occasions, smuggled in illegally to visit Lev inside the camp. And this was an extraordinary risk to take, quite foolish. I mean, when I did interviews with the couple and I asked her what had possessed her to take such a risk, she sort of was at a, a loss to explain it. She said, the devil must have got into my head. But, you know, that's what love does, I suppose. It drives people to take these extraordinary risks. And, and, and Svetlana did it in so many ways, not just by writing to Lev and even then visiting him, but, you know, also helping other prisoners in the camp um, uh, and, and disobeying so many Soviet rules in so many ways. Was it unusual for a couple to maintain a relationship in Soviet Russia with such a long period of separation? Ah, unusual by any standards. Um, Svetlana last saw Lev in, uh, before he went to war in, in September 1941, and um, they were not to be reunited until effectively 1955. So, you know, for anyone to wait 14 years for someone, especially as Svetlana did from the age of 23 to the age of 37, without expectation that he would ever be released, without any real hope that she could ever have a family... Um, you know, that's absolutely extraordinary. Um, often, um, and, you know, often I wondered, I asked myself, what was it that uh, explains this incredible devotion and sacrifice on her part? Um, and is it just her character? Is it something to do with the Soviet Union, the fact that people were used to making sacrifices or put 
more by relationships because they had less in material terms. There's a very moving letter in which she says, you know, all I need in life is you, Lev. I, I, I believe in you. I believe in our future. Um, girlfriends tell me that, you know, you, you, you can't be happy in a relationship unless you have all the comforts of life, but all I need is, is, is to know that I'll have you, Lev. And that, that sort of hope, that sort of um, belief in their future uh, keeps, I think, both of them going. Um, so maybe that's something to do with the Soviet environment, but I think in the end it's, it's mainly about the exceptional nature of Svetlana as a person. And you're right, I mean, in most circumstances, the gulag did break relationships. Um, it was too much to expect a girlfriend, uh, you know, maybe even a wife, to wait for, for you when you had a 10-year sentence, when there was no prospect of return. And in, in most cases, yes, relationships were broken. But this is a, a wonderful story because these are two people waiting and uh, making all sorts of sacrifices uh, so that they could have a life together. And fantastically for us, and particularly for me as the historian privileged enough to work on their archive, preserving all these letters so that they kept a record of that heroic story. And there were such a large number of letters that were discovered. How did you choose which ones you were going to use in the book? Yeah, it was a very difficult um, process of selection. Um, there were many themes that could have been developed but weren't, characters that could have been developed that weren't. Um, in the end, I think I was looking for um, a shape to the story, but also choosing letters that would uh, preserve the integrity of the story. Um, the thing about letters when you work with them in such large quantities is that there are things that sort of are dead ends or there are things that open up but then don't develop and you can't explain. There's so many gaps in the story you can't fill, you can't make anything up, you can't write sentences which sort of have must have or perhaps. Unless something can be verified, you can't really pursue it. This is a work of history, it's not a romantic novel. So, um, in the end, I was limited by the choices that I had to make as a historian as to you know, what what would preserve the integrity of the story, what was verifiable, what I could explain. And a lot of that was not just about the selection of letters for their own sake or for what they revealed in themselves, it was also about what I could connect to surrounding evidence. Because, in fact, you know, the more I think about it, the letters in themselves don't give us that much. They're a tremendous resource. But... There's so much in a correspondence which comes to you just in that form that can't be explained. What was fantastic for me as a historian was to have the opportunity to work with the archive of the labour camp in tandem with this correspondence being written inside the camp. I got access effectively to the KGB archive of the labour camp in which Lev was a prisoner, as well as the administration of the larger gulag in the north. And particularly with the archive of the wood combine where Lev was a prisoner among 1,500 prisoners um, in the late 1940s, I was able then to match what he was writing with what you know, was being decided by the guards or by the party administration of the camp. And then putting that together with the testimony of people I interviewed in Petura, where the camp was, 
um, and with the writings of others who've been prisoners there, you could begin to sort of match things together. And that was, that in the end, I think, was the sort of mm, one of the main influences on my selection, on the criteria of, of my selection of the letters, what I could piece together that would make sense historically, but also in terms of the story of these two individuals. Were there any of the letters that you found especially poignant or memorable? Oh, yeah, so many. I mean, there were, there were letters that brought tears to my eyes and still do. Um, there were letters, you know, obviously there are letters where they're expressing the anguish of separation, uh, the yearning they feel for each other. Um, there are letters where they're discussing the possibility of a life without each other, whether he should think in terms of enjoying life or thinking about life you know, without her, whether it was unhealthy for them to depend on one person. There are letters of extraordinary um, emotional tension where, for example, Lev doesn't hear from her and is anguished about her security or where he hasn't heard from her after she's visited him and he doesn't know if she'll be arrested before she gets safely back to Moscow. Um, and then there are very moving letters where he's talking about his fellow prisoners or where um, he's sending her symptoms of some of his friends in the hope that she might find a diagnosis from her doctor friends and might even send medicines out um, for, for him to give these people because there are so few medicines available in the camp. So all of these things um, involve one in their story in a very emotional way, uh, in, a, in a very moving way, because in the end this is a story, not, not really just a love story about these two individuals, uh, but it's also a story about love and solidarity and friendship, and you get this sense of, of a sort of very, very powerful network of people of friends developing not just of Svetlana helping Lev and his friends in the camp but also helping the relatives of those people in the camp and so people would on their release go and stay with Svetlana or relatives of those in the camp would 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 you know get in touch with Svetlana and she would help them when they're in Moscow trying to sort out paperwork or whatever so you get this sense of the gulag is a repressive system but then on the edges of the system all of these bonds these networks of solidarity and mutual help and friendship and love develop which enable people to survive and that's I think perhaps um, the thing about the correspondence that I found most memorable and um, was very revealing about the reality of, of life in the Soviet Union that maybe we haven't had a chance to see before. Clearly both of them suffered a great deal during this period of their lives under the Soviet system. How did their experiences affect their views of the country they lived in and the regime that ran it? Well, that's a really interesting question and unfortunately I never really got a chance to ask them that because... Having discovered the letters, I then did some interviews, filmed interviews with Lev and Svetlana in the spring of 2008, but hadn't at that point yet got the letters transcribed. And by the time all the letters were transcribed, and it took two years, it uh, was too late because both had passed away. And I would love to have had the chance to ask them these sort of questions. There's very little about politics as such in the letters. Um, even when Stalin dies and they both hear the same radio broadcast announcing it, 
and you think, oh, now they're going to open up about their political views. They don't. Both were essentially fairly orthodox Soviet believers from this scientific technical world in which they'd moved in the 1930s. They were both physicists at Moscow University. Um, and they both believe in Soviet science and technology, but obviously the war and then Lev's incarceration shakes them from many of their conventional views and attitudes. Um, but they live in a sort of double world, I suppose, to a large degree. Svetlana will, you know, she's a party member, an activist and a trade unionist and organises Soviet elections and she goes on marches on Red Square. Um, but at the same time, she's quite sarcastic about the bureaucratic language and dialectical materialism, this mandatory course they have to study even as senior researchers. And so, you know, there's a sort of curious, almost paradoxical mix there. And equally, Lev, although he's a prisoner in the gulag, in one or two of his letters, he waxes lyrical about the achievements of... Soviet technology and science, even in places like the Volga Don Canal, which he knows perfectly well is a gulag project. So it's a strange thing to try to explain. They are Soviet in every way, but they're also sceptical. Um, but they're never embittered, I think, by the system. And even years later, when I did, you know, several days interviews with Lev and we teased out some of these issues, I think, about, about politics... And he was talking clearly with the hindsight of, of 50 years in 2008. Then, you know, he had no illusions about the about the Soviet system, but there was no bitterness about what the Soviet system had done to him. And in some ways, in fact, some of the most revealing letters um, from the later period of his imprisonment, there's a sign that he to some degree, accepts his guilt. Um, Svetlana's trying to encourage him at many points to appeal against his sentence, if only because if he can get it lightened, he then might qualify to return to scientific work after his release. And there's this very revealing letter in 1954, about six months before his eventual release, where, where Lev says, well, you know, why should I apply for um, a lightning on my sentence? Because even if I wasn't guilty of espionage, I was guilty of translation work, which he was. He'd done some translation when he was in various concentration camps in Germany because he, he'd been forced to work as a translator. He spoke German. And so he was almost accepting of his guilt to some degree. And you know, made the point, well, why should I appeal against my sentence when there's so many others around me who've also been unjustly treated? Why should I be made an exception? So there's this sort of realisation, this understanding of what's happened to him. This sense, yes, that the Soviet system is unjust, but there's no bitterness or, or sort of anti-Sovietism that develops as a result of that. And that's a very interesting sort of state of political consciousness, I suppose, that I would really love to have explored if I'd had the chance. And you mentioned that you did get a chance to meet to meet both of them before they passed away. Did Were the people you met the, the same people that you, you encountered the letters, or had they changed quite a lot by that period? <laughs> that's a great question. Um, I don't know, because, and that's a very difficult question to answer, honestly, because obviously having met them and gained an impression of them as people, very strong impression, you then read the letters with the benefit of having met them. Um, I'd say, though, that they were essentially the same people. They were both very extraordinary personalities. Lev was a very gentle person, 
a very nice, likable guy. I think that's one of the reasons why he survives and gets so many people like guards or camp officials to help him. Um, there's something true and sincere about him that means that you sort of believe him, you want to think the best of him, and therefore you probably want to help him. And Svetlana, although by the time I met her, was she was quite ill, um, and didn't, she found it difficult to talk. She retained something that I really love in her character, which is her sense of humour. So she was in a wheelchair when I met her, and she was finding it difficult to do the interview, but she had this twinkle in her eyes still, and I remember, for example, asking her, you know, what was it that uh, first attracted her to Lev? You know, what was the thing about him she liked so much? And my fellow interviewer, a woman called Irina Ostrovska from Memorials, said to her, suggested it might be Lev's viernost, his truthfulness, and, um, you know, the fact that he was believable. And Svetlana pauses, and then she looks up, and there's this twinkle in her eye, and she says, yes, the thing is, I don't know why I ever believed him in the first place. So there's this sort of, you know, there's a playfulness, even after 50 years and uh, more, uh, 70 years of being together, and all that time of waiting for him, all those sacrifices she made for him, um, there's this sort of, there's this still this sort of playfulness in her, which I, I really like. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. That was Orlando Fiji's. Just Send Me Word, A True Story of Love and Survival in the Gulag is published by Alan Lane. Orlando will be talking about the book at the Times Cheltenham Literature Festival on Monday the 8th of October. For details of the talk and tickets, please visit cheltenhamfestivals.com. And now we have a short advert. He was a tyrant who had everything he could ever want yet saw enemies everywhere. A paranoid, suspicious despot and a self-styled master and god. His contemporaries tried to write him out of history, but now historical novelist Lindsay Davis brings the Emperor Domitian back to startling, triumphant life in Master and God. The epic new novel tells the story of two unwilling witnesses to Domitian's descent into insanity. Gaius Vinius Claudianus, a reluctant recruit to the elite Praetorian Guard, a brave man striving for decency in a world of corruption and deceit. And Flavia Lucilla, tending the privileged women at court, party to the intimate secrets of a ruler who toys with the lives of his subjects like a careless god. In the dark shadow of Domitian's reign, these two ordinary people must choose between their sworn duty to protect the emperor and an act of courage that will change the future of Rome. From the creator of the Falco series, Lindsay Davis presents Master and God, an epic of Rome, tyranny and love. Out now in all good bookshops.
Before our next interview, I thought I'd give you a quick heads up about our forthcoming First World War Day. On the 4th of November, we're hosting a day of talks by leading experts on the conflict at the M-Shed Museum in Bristol. Speakers taking part include Gary Sheffield, Hugh Strawn, Mark Connolly, William Philpott and Peter Caddick Adams. Tickets for the whole day are just £40 for subscribers to the magazine and £50 for non-subscribers. To find out more and to book tickets, please visit historyextra.com forward slash events. 200 years ago, the UK's gas industry was born, transforming the lives of millions of people by giving them access to efficient and affordable supplies of light, heat and energy. BBC History magazine section editor Charlotte Hodgman spoke to John Butterworth, a director at the National Grid, about the history of gas and its impact on Britain. And this interview also contains audio clips from the archives of the National Grid. Britain's gas industry as we know it today began 200 years ago when a German entrepreneur by the name of Frederick Windsor obtained a royal charter to build the world's first public gas works, which opened in Westminster in 1813, lighting the streets of London with supplies of gas created by burning coal. It was quite a milestone really because you can imagine before 1812 there were you know, candles that lit the streets of London if you were lucky and crime and muggings and everything was just part of everyday life. Most people didn't go out after dark unless they had to. And by bringing in this illuminated lighting from gas, the streets started to become safer and, um, you know, it changed the way that cities and the citizens in cities operated. In 1816, Preston became the first provincial town in the UK to have gas street lighting, and just one year later, in 1817, the first gas meter was developed and installed at the gasworks of the Royal Mint. Britain was lighting up. Yeah, it, sp- it spread like absolute wildfire because this people were fascinated by this incandescent illuminated light that um, was so bright and so powerful. Um, so yeah, it took off lighting. Um, all over the country and, you know, started to then take off all over the what there was the then Western world. Once people started to understand it, they brought lighting into the houses so they could see um, in, in the hours of darkness, which was, you know, which was a massive deal. I mean, uh, there was an exhibition of lighting in theatres. People came to see this illuminated, incandescent white light uh, and were fascinated by it. And then as time moved on, uh, it was used to, you know, you name it, they came up with everything. Heated curling tongs. You think curling tongs are a thing of the modern day. There was heated curling tongs. When you see the flame coming out of the back of them, I don't think I'd have put them near my head. Uh, there was heated baths. There was water heaters. There was a, a gas toaster. Um, you name any utensil they could convert to be used by gas then you know everyone was inventing trying to make money out of um, creating appliances used by this new type of gas. After the introduction of Robert Bunsen's aerated burner in 1855 which improved the combustion of gas to create a more intense flame alternative markets for gas continued to open up well into the 20th century. Prepayment gas meters were introduced in 1870, helping to make gas more affordable, while the 1920s saw the introduction of the thermostatic controls on gas ovens. Kensal House in London, built by the Gas, Light and Coke Company in the 1930s, was designed as a showpiece for modern architectural design and the benefits of gas power in the home. The following soundbite has been taken from a short film produced by the Gas, Light and Coke Company in 1937. 
In my new home, we can put up a large billiard table and have a game of billiards or sit round the fire in comfort. And if Mrs Aldridge wants to do a bit of ironing, she needn't disturb us. She has a gas iron out in the kitchen and a nice big work table under the window with the gas copper tucked away under the draining board until washing day. There's plenty of room now for the Shepherd family at dinner time and no cooking in the living room either as they used to. Mrs Shepherd, like the rest of us, has her own kitchen with a gas cooker complete. Plenty of cupboards to keep the food and crockery in. And a hatch through to the living room to save her legs when the table's being laid. But while huge leaps were being made in gas appliances, early gas use could be lethal, not to mention polluting, and life as a gas worker could be extremely dangerous, as John explains. The um, chemicals given off by the manufacture of gas, the cyanides, the oxides, sulphur, um, it was absolutely appalling, the working conditions. You imagine and lots and lots of employees loading in the hot, you know, dozens of ovens in batteries and rows in the retort house, shoveling coal into them and then pulling out the old coal and the flames and the um, poisonous gases, you know, hitting them straight in the face as they put the new coal in to recharge them to keep the gas flowing. And they say that um, um, a stoker, that's a guy that chucks coal um, into a fire, um, it used to get a pair of wooden clogs and they could get a new pair every month because the heat and the ashes on the floor, the clogs slowly burnt uh, and after a month they were burnt really down to the sole of their feet and they were allowed a new pair so you get a rough idea of, of how bad it was. The following clip is taken from a film created by the Pathé Documentary Unit for the Gas Council in 1954 which set out to show how smoke-laden fog put people's health at risk and damaged buildings. Smoke is subtle, and that's its danger. It reduces working capacity, increases fatigue. It kills all beauty and takes away the spirit. And any doctor will tell you that spirit is health. Yes, to produce this thing that kills all beauty, health and spirit, we don't use some devil's brew, but valuable ingredients from our most precious mineral, coal. We don't brew it in some devil's kitchen either. We do it in our own. Here is the main source of atmospheric pollution, producing more smoke per tonne than any other appliance in use, worse than industry. Yet we fling it on our fires, send most of its value up the chimney and never count the cost, for that is all around us. Smoke, like all evils, comes home to roost. By 1914, the gas industry had become a leading employer of women, many of whom worked as sales representatives, clerks and secretaries. And the First World War saw women performing all manner of jobs within the industry, from stokers and coke loaders to welders and lamplighters. Gas was also important for the production of weapons and explosives, and maintaining gas supplies was crucial to the war effort in both world wars, as this clip from a 1945 film made by the Gas Council demonstrates. The stacks and stacks of shells to refit our forces after Dunkirk would not have been possible without the ever-ready and controllable heat from gas. The gun barrels of the six-pounder, 
the tanks, so puny looking now, but then so eagerly awaited by our desert army. That utility made of all work, the 25-pounder gun, a few of the weapons hardened and tempered in gas furnaces. Bombs carried with persistency and dropped with accuracy by our growing air force carried the war into the heart of Germany. Bombs cast from gas heat, bombs that grew in beauty side by side, the result of fuel supplied by the largest industry in Europe and the largest gas from coal industry in the world. In the 1960s, natural gas was discovered under the North Sea, transforming the industry. Natural gas was much cleaner, cheaper and more plentiful in supply and the whole of the UK was converted from coal gas to natural gas over a period of 10 years from 1967 to 1977. Many people struggled with their new gas supply, however, as it burnt much hotter and cooked food a lot quicker. The next clip shows how teams of women, known as home service advisors, were on hand to show customers how to use their new appliances by baking the perfect Victoria sponge in the oven. Letting day. And on the spot is the mobile van of the local gas board, bringing the showroom to the people. A great day for the new tenants, many of whom will have for the first time a place of their own. Unlike the male of the species, this young bride is kitchen conscious, and her first thoughts naturally turn towards the gas cooker. The decision must be hers, but how nice if she could discuss the pros and cons with another woman. Nothing simpler. A home service advisor is close at hand to furnish the feminine viewpoint. And furnish it she does. With her own domestic background, Mrs. Norris can readily explain to the young housewife each and every feature of this particular gas cooker. Woman to woman, they talk the same language. Today, 200 years after the creation of the Gas, Light and Coke Company, National Grid Distribution Networks deliver gas to 10.8 million consumers, enough to fill Wembley Stadium 120 times. Britain, it seems, is still cooking with gas. High-speed gas is your servant. The flame appears instantly at your command. You can see it, you can control it. Automation has its place, but cooking, particularly good cooking, still needs the human touch. Your touch. This way, the compliments are all yours. That was John Butterworth from the National Grid, together with some fascinating archive clips. You can also watch some archive footage relating to the history of the gas industry at historyextra.com forward slash gas video and look out for Bob Dylan and Vera Lynn on that. Plus, we've put together a slideshow of images on the topic, and you'll find that at historyextra.com forward slash gas. That's about all for this week's episode. We will, of course, be back next week, when we'll be discussing radicals of the past and how history is presented to children. And in the meantime, keep an eye on our website, historyextra.com, for blogs, quizzes, galleries and more. And don't forget, you can find our Kindle and iPad editions on the Amazon website and the Apple newsstand, respectively. The History Extra Weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson.
collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.